Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Wind Your Neckin. So we reached the halfway mark on our sponsored giveaway from Whelan's Yard and we still have some class stuff to get out to you guys. This week we are giving away one coffee pack. In this coffee pack you'll receive one kilogram house blend coffee. You get to choose if you want that ground coffee bean or whole coffee bean. A plastic V60, a V60 filter paper and a brew recipe sheet. It's a great way to experiment and enjoy a coffee in lockdown. There's a really great episode coming up. We hope you guys enjoy. And as always, eyes on social media for ways to enter. Cheers. Okay, a big welcome to this week's Wind Your Neck In episode. Delighted to say we have one of the most renowned coaches in Europe, if not the planet at the moment, um, on the podcast. So a big thank you to Stuart Lancaster for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for the introduction. I'm not quite sure I'd uh, agree with your uh, analysis there, but uh, no, nice, to, nice to be here. Yeah, it's always funny. You try and uh, introduce people and everybody always kind of like feels a bit weird whenever you introduce them, but uh, it's it's the reality of, of the situation. So I suppose, listen, we're going to get you on today to talk about um, the real ins and outs of coaching, not the kind of same chronological discussion around the history of what you've done. It's more about the ins and outs of coaching for someone like me as a young professional coach, aspiring professional coach, and also a professional rugby player. This should provide some great insight to guys and girls who are interested in the world of coaching but also about you know the, the, the people out there who are interested to know what goes through the mind of a coach, what allows you to put in place the scenarios and the situations for the players like at Leinster now to go and, go and win silverware. So we're looking forward to getting into some of that stuff. And I think it's only right that we start at the beginning because the relationship of you as a teacher and how that transfers into you as a coach, I'm interested to know off the back of a family full of teachers, so I understand some of the, the skills that teachers have to have, how you feel like that that has contributed to your quality as a coach yeah I think it's massive massive I can't underestimate the importance of my teaching career which has led to my coaching career so if you want rewind the clock I did a sports science degree so this is 1988 to 91 sports science degree the game of rugby obviously was amateur at the time the game only a professional 95 so I left school and um, I was always interested in sport so the sports science degree was a really Good bridging point, and it was a it was a good degree in that it gave some physiology, biomechanics, um, psychology, and it, it looked at different aspects of gameplay and invasion games and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, great three years. Um, undecided what to do in the fourth year, and then decided to do the PGCE, which is the teacher training qualification uh, at the time. And I, I didn't realise at the time, but we had three or four very very good teacher educators within the um, within the university I was at, and really benefit from their experience you know one of them who's 80 years old now Mal Butterworth and I'm sure if anyone was at Carnegie at the time when you hear the name Mal Butterworth everyone will nod their head and goes yeah he was <laughs> legend and uh, I still see him now and uh, his, he taught me a huge amount about how to how to coach how to teach not what um, I was a reasonably broad skill set in terms of my understanding of games um, in that I played many sports so I wasn't just rugby at the time anyway it was only you know part-time anyway so you know, I'd play basketball, hockey, football, cricket, tennis, squash, badminton, you know, you name it really. And um, I, had, I had a good concept of the, the what and a good concept of the how from leaving teacher education. And then I went into teaching. And obviously, you know, that process of plan to review a session. Um, Monday morning, it's basketball followed by badminton, followed by hockey, followed by rugby, followed by cross country. You know, five sessions, five lessons a day, five days a week, plan, do, review. and you know, you do that 40 weeks of the year, 
you just get you just get hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours of practice of planning sessions, trying to progress a basketball group of year nines to go from never having played the sport to an organised competitive game within six weeks. You know, coaching the chess pass, the dribble, the bounce pass, the layup, the zone defence, the man-to-man defence. You know, whatever. So you know, you put all all those hours together. There's no doubt that teaching played a huge, huge part in, in shaping my career as a coach. And it also allows you to fail without it being catastrophic. You know, if your year seven basketball lesson doesn't go that well, it's not that way. It probably could be sometimes in the school you're at. Um, <laughs> you learn how to motivate, you learn how to communicate, you learn how to transfer your knowledge to, to, to pupils. So it was brilliant. I loved it. Really yeah, I think that how versus what something I can really relate to because um, as someone who spends his whole, you know, from seven to four or five every day thinking about rugby, I've got an idea of what the what is, if that makes sense. But the skill for me developing is how do I get that message across to people? So I suppose it, it takes a really skillful coach to be able to, to transfer the knowledge he has to people who might not be at the same level as them. And I think that's where professional rugby players have to upskill massively when they leave the game. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, I think it's 100% fair. I think, funnily enough, I've just been asked to do an article on the evolution of coaching. And what I'm trying to, I'm trying to articulate by writing 700 words on it is, <laughs> is that I think during the, the mid-90s to 2000, the people who were involved in coaching as the game went professional typically were teachers. You know, and they, they had the how, and less so the what, actually, I think. You know, when I, look, when I think back to some of the content of the sessions that I was involved in as a player. But as the game went professional, and, and probably into the, uh, into the 2000s now, the knowledge of the game improved and video analysis, you know, um, quality of coaching improved. But typically what then happened was a lot of coaches became, came from the ex-playing group. So their knowledge of what what a good game of rugby looks like, what a good defence looks like, what good line looks like, what good contact skills look like, what good attack looks like. Um, it's pretty good because obviously they've, they've been professional rugby players. But they've not actually understood the halbert um, and never been coached the halbert. Now, what the RFU did at the time, I think, really well, um, was a guy, Kevin Barron, head of coach development. He put, he, he was, the RFU ahead at the time with his appointment, I think, and he gave a huge amount of coach development opportunities for young players who were wanting to become coaches and he he upskilled a lot in the in the early 2000s and into sort of towards 2010 and i think the second point you made I'm not, I'm not sure if you 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 meant to make it but it's definitely relevant the the bit about um well there's one there's what the first thing the what the what to coach and how to coach paul o'connell i remember spoke to me he said god i've got all this knowledge in my head i understand the game but i'm struggling to, to explain it to people who, 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 who don't maybe have the same level of understanding. So he, yeah. he was very much a good example of, of that conversation I had with him. But also things that came naturally to Paul O'Connell, um, and that's the reason he was an unbelievable you know, world-class rugby player, don't come naturally to 95% of professional rugby players anyway. And that's, mm. that's what coaching is. Coaching is not getting Paul O'Connell. You know, it's, it's getting the, the, the 95% of players who have... Um, if you imagine a, a, an elite player as technical and tactical, physical and mental, three components, I think, to make up an elite player. And each, each player you, you look at, you're almost giving them a, a subjective score out of 10 in each of those three areas. Now, 99% of the people I've ever coached rarely score 10 out of 10 in each of those three areas. Yeah. But that's coaching. Coaching is your job to, if they're 
seven out of 10 on technical and tactical, then your job is to help them improve their technique, their skill, their understanding, make it eight, make it nine. Physically, obviously, less so for us as coaches, more so for the S&C, but these are the physical demands. And mentally, certainly coaching, he's the resilience piece, he's the communication piece, he's the leadership piece, he's the, you know, what, whatever. Um, you can certainly improve that. So I think the more we can do to help the current professional player to transition into coaching by teaching them how to coach the better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for anybody listening who just thinks that, you know, coaching or, or, or teaching is just basically you tell people and they do it. It's an example of some of the hows are around, you know, your positioning, how you explain things, do you give demonstrations, how you use your voice. I mean, we just briefly before this talked about verbal tics and 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 there's loads of stuff that goes in around the planning and organization of it. And I think that is all part of the, the pie, so to speak, as to how you as a coach provide a good session. One of the interesting things off the back of that, Stuart, I was interested to know because I know for a fact in the environment I'm I'm in now and the environment I've been in, there's loads of different ways that people learn. So we use the the VARC model where people learn visually, auditory, uh, reading or kinesthetic, which means you you do the action. When you're trying to when you're trying to put on a session for let's say 20 to 40 people, let, let's just go for 30 people. You're putting a session on for 30 people and you're trying to appeal with the how to all these people. How do you take into consideration some of the ways that they will actually keep the information? Because I know you're big on um, the recall aspect of coaching so that they actually listen to it, take it on, and then two days later when you go to discuss it, when they can recall that, that's important. I'm just interested to know how you would appeal to those people who maybe learn by doing it versus the people who learn by writing it down. Yeah, and the key word is differentiation. You know, when, you, when you're taught as a teacher is to differentiate your session. So when you're taking a group of year nines for basketball, let's go back to that analogy. Um, you've got some very able athletic kids in there who hand-eye coordination comes naturally to them. You've got some who maybe, you know, would sort of catch up basketball, you know, deliver a bounce pass and, and you know, understand space on a, on a basketball court. Um, so what you've got to do, you've got to learn to differentiate a session so that everyone achieves success. Now, obviously, when you get to the top end of professional rugby, the differentiation in skill set is actually closer than, obviously, it's obviously closer because they wouldn't have got there if they didn't have the skill set in the first place. Yeah. But there's still, there's still players who find it more comfortable to pass off the left hand than the right hand or whatever. The same is true in differentiating of learning styles, I think. It becomes harder in a, in a, in a rugby context in that you might have James Lowe, for example, who we've got at um, uh, Leinster, who'd be, he'd prefer to learn by doing. Yeah, um, and there are other lads at Leinster who would prefer, you know, who maybe they've gone through, they've already done the degree, they're used to sitting in lectures, they're happy dealing with loads of content, they can sit and concentrate for long periods of time. Yeah. So I think you've got to appeal to the masses, really, as a coach, um, and you've got to try and hit. So at Leinster, we'd be very, I think, you know, if you look at the profile of the players, they'd be very, come from good schools, gone to university, gone to UCD you know, used to that sort of student-type uh, approach. But we had a, a conversation, and I, I had the experience as well, coaching in counties Monaco um, in, the, in the Mighty Cup, and uh, they were definitely visual learners. Yeah. They needed stories. They needed themes to bring the, the game to life for them. And now, I think storytelling and theming is really important as well. But the extent to which you do it, I think, is, is dependent on the, the, the group that you're coaching. And then if you have individuals within that who you know might be struggling to pick up a concept, then that's the way the one-to-one work comes in. But your, your instinct as a coach, I mean, we, we do psychometric profiling as well, which helped me 
So not all the players at Leinster have done it, but a lot have. We use Insights, which is a way in which you can understand people's personality. Yeah, it gives you the colours, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it, gives, it, yeah. Gives you, it gives you an insight of their personality. And the main reason I'm doing it, actually, for two reasons. One is to share with the coaching team for I can learn more about you as a person. But also, secondly, I want you to learn about yourself. That's mm. actually the main point. But again, you go back through the years of experience that you learn as a teacher, you know, and you've got all this range of kids in any one lesson. You learn the art of differentiation. And I think it is an art. You know, it is. And that's what the best coaches do. I mean, you, you'll, if I ask you to cast your mind back through your school career, you know, club career that you've had, mm-hmm. uh, and about the coaches, there are just certain coaches who understand when to press the right button at the right time with the group. That, 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 that's it. You know, I don't think coaching is something that you can prescribe. And it's a science. I think it's an art. And I think it's, it's the flow up and down the spectrum of directive coaching at one end to empowering coaching at the other. So sometimes in meetings, it's, right, this is what I think, boys, and this is where we're going. Follow me. Um, or sometimes, right, what do you think? Um, or, or you change your the content of your review or your preview or you tell a story or you show a clip from, I remember I showed a clip not so long ago of the assistant manager at Liverpool talking mm-hmm. um, to bring to life a concept I wanted to make. And that, that clip stayed with the players for a long time, probably a lot longer than any other thing I said. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, it's, I think it's brilliant. I think the, the following up with the individuals who maybe learn in a different ways is really important. That's something that we, um, as a club, have had to work really hard at because it's very evident that everybody learns in different ways. And I think the self-awareness for the player and the coach is something that we'll definitely, definitely get to. But before that, I wanted to start with this word that pops up in, in every rugby club across probably the world. But, and some get it really right and some just never quite get to the, the real ins and outs of it. It's almost banded around a little bit wishy-washy, but the word is culture. And, and, and straight away, people who, who think of culture automatically think of success that follows. And I'm not sure that really goes hand in hand, but I'm interested to know, in your opinion, in, in, and I appreciate it's a broad question, but what does a good culture look like in a rugby club specifically? Yeah, I think you're right. It is, it is get used a lot and it is quite hard to define, isn't it? You know, it uh, another word is environment. You know, what is the environment like that you're working in? Someone gave me a great analogy, which I thought uh, is relevant. You know, a great culture or a great environment is a place where people want to come to, uh, a place where people who are there would stay longer than they ordinarily would. Hmm. So... You're, if you have a good environment, a good culture, your ability to recruit people and attract people to your environment is helped you know, massively. And uh, so they, they'd st- they stay longer than they ordinarily would. And if they do leave, let's say you, know, you leave to, or you retire or you go to a different club, when you, when you look back or when you talk about that environment or that culture, you, go, you, know, you talk about it in only in positive terms and you describe it as the best place you've been involved in. I think if you get those three things right, so if you get environment right, where good people want to come, Good people who've got to stay longer than the ordinary would. And if they do leave, when they do leave, they go, that was the best time of my career. I think you're on, you're on to something. That's what good culture looks like. Let's flip it on its head. Okay, you're not in a good environment or a good culture. You're thinking about going to the organization, but you're thinking, actually, I've not heard good things about this. You know, I've heard there's like a bullying culture or um, people get belittled or um, there's poor coaching or um, lads are not that professional. Or when you're there and you've got a choice of staying or moving to a different club, um, you think, no, no, I want to stay here. I absolutely love it. You know, I feel we're on the right track. You know, we're, um, the leaders are people I would willingly follow, not because I'm paid to follow them, but I, I believe in yeah. them. And then when you, and when you finish, if you're a poor culture, you go, 
geez, that was such a letdown, such a disappointment, you know. So yeah, that's, that's sort of my, in my, in my head, um, the way I try and define it. And I think it's important to understand it as well as a, like a, a balloon in front of you. Um, and the more you inject positivity into your culture, the bigger the balloon grows. But equally, it's not, it's not stuck at one size. Um, if you have a poor environment and poor culture, you're constantly losing energy from your balloon. The balloon's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so it's not, it's not just stuck in one place. Cult, you know, a culture is something that lives, it's an organism that lives and breathes. And you as the coach and as the leader, you're not the only person, but you're a big driver of what that culture should look and feel like. So I believe, you know, leadership and strong leadership and good leadership and good coaching is the key to uh, a successful culture. Yeah, I really like that analogy of the balloon because you can kind of see that, you know, you can put lots into it. And when you put the right stuff into an environment or culture, the word environment probably sits better with me because it's a, it almost feels like you're living it on a daily basis. Whereas this word culture, like there's words that you know, and I know get banded around by every rugby club from amateur to professional at the start of every season. And the next one is accountability because good teams have accountability, but every team tries to have accountability. And I don't think that, I, I would go as far as to say that I don't think three quarters to maybe even 80 to 85% of teams get accountability right because you have to be in a certain space mentally and professionally and physically to be really accountable for when you're getting things right and wrong. I was wondering if you had any insight into the word accountability and how that looks within a successful culture. Yeah, I think, I, I think, I think you're right. I think that... Um, true accountability where people are honest with each other is, is a product of a high-performing environment, you know, so, uh, yeah. or it is a, a sign of a high-performing environment where people have true, true accountability. Um, so accountable to themselves first, accountable to the teammates. And, you know, if I took Leinster as an example, part of the reason why I think Leinster um, are successful is because there is a genuine accountability from everyone across the board. And I think that starts from the top. So it starts from Leo, who would be very humble, um, fantastic integrity um he would be prepared to put his hand up if he'd made a mistake he'd admit if he'd got something wrong he's prepared to take accountability for his decisions you know myself felipe robin mcbride you know very similar personalities albeit from different environments the leadership group you know the likes of johnny and sean o'brien before him and jamie heaslip and those senior players that, that have instigated that leinster culture and environment they not only hold themselves accountable, they hold everyone else accountable yeah. to the standards that we set that is, that is the acceptable. And if you've got that powerful combination of senior players in your leadership group, your senior coaches and the, the organization as a whole who are prepared to hold each other to account, then I think you've got something, you can go somewhere. And, you know, we base our um, environment around three values. And, you know, I've been on lots of, team building away days, you know, let's talk about our values and our behaviours yeah. and our vision and all that sort of stuff. But at Leinster, to be fair, we live them. We live, we live the values and we live the behaviours that underpin those values. And they're the players that have come up with those. Now, sometimes, you know, as a coach, you can have a guiding hand on those, those values, but it's more powerful if the players can, can come up with them. And I remember we lost um, two uh, semi-finals in my first year, 2016. We lost against Scarlets in the Pro 14 final, semi-final. And we lost against Claremont in the European Cup semi-final. Yeah. And one of our values was self-improvement. We changed that, that value to ruthless. And not a ruthless mindset to win at all costs, but a ruthless mindset to hold each other to account to the standards that we expect of each other. And then, you know, a series of behaviours. And the, the, the change in the behaviours of the players on the back of the ruthless accountability to each other 
I think, was a big part in playing us winning the double the following year, winning Europe and winning the Pro 14. So I think it's a combined thing, but I think, again, let's flip on its head, what does poor accountability look like? Um, and one thing that I always say to leaders in, uh, in life is the biggest thing that you can lose in terms of your credibility is by, doing, by saying something and then not doing it. So it's absolutely critical to do what you say you're going to do. And you lose accountability if you promise one thing and deliver another, or don't deliver another, um, or you don't want to talk. And, you know, how many players have you played with, and I could think of players I've coached, who said, yes, I'm truly accountable, but then when it really comes and the tough times come, they don't actually live the values of the behaviours themselves. And so they're, they're ultimately not accountable. And I guess the final point is, What's even worse then, if the coaches then don't hold them accountable. So if you as coaches and one of your senior players is sat there and he's giving it out to the young academy players who arrived late to a meeting and then he arrives late to the meeting and you don't hold him to account, you're done. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think um, one of the mottos that stuck with me, it's not a motto, but a saying that stuck with me was from a guy called Eamon Highland, who was an SNC coach at Worcester. And he was one of the best strength and conditioners um, I've worked with. And his, his motto stuck with me because it sums up the accountability that we need to have with each other and with ourselves. And it was, you are the standards you walk past. And I know he's taken that from someone else, but that was just perfect for us because you, if you walk past, you know, litter, for example, in the training ground, you become the standard of whoever's dropped the litter. And I think that's really powerful. And off the back of the environment that you set to, to try and in the pursuit of success, Richard Wigglesworth um, was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he said something that I released as a soundbite. I thought it was unbelievable. He said, you know, our environment isn't somewhere that you could survive unless you were elite because people can get chewed up and spat out quite quickly. And I thought that summed up that kind of Saracen's culture and environment that has been well documented to lead to some of their success but high performing environments and cultures can sometimes be really difficult places to live in but they do breed some really good success but it's not a particularly comfortable place to live no no i mean there's nothing less comfortable than being sat in a review on a monday morning when you've lost a big game is there yeah i mean it's not comfortable for anyone because as a coach you're going to hold people to account even though you didn't play the game you know, so I don't think people often consider that, you know, how uncomfortable it is from a coaching point of view to say, you know, I know you, you didn't, we talked about doing this and this, this system error in our defensive line has cost us a trial, which has actually cost us the game. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy from the cheap sheets to say that, you know, I've got huge respect for every rugby player who, who, who will be playing at any level, you know, the physicality of the game and everything that comes with it, you know, every rugby player I would, I would, I would respect. And having done it myself, you know, it's, it's a tough sport to play, but it's such a, it's such a brilliant team sport. That's why, that's why we love it. But, um, yeah. but when, you, when you stand with an international team in the tunnel at Twickenham and I know you've got the All Blacks still beside you and there's 80,000 people in the stadium and there's millions watching on TV and all your family and friends, that takes real courage, I think, yeah. as, as, uh, for players to do that. And not only for the physicality and the, the, the energy, the emotional energy that required to play the actual physical game, but then the consequences of, of, of the defeat or the victory and the analysis subsequently that comes. So it's a very, very tough sport. And um, I think, you know, that Monday morning review when you've lost a game, how, how you deal with that is, is actually, I think, defines what the good or the great coach is. Um, we can all do the review when we've won. You know, we can all Easy. sit in the room and, and uh, go, yeah, it was great. And <laughs> but i never forget, we, um, we lost against Saracens in the European Cup final. And, you know, it's painful. Very, very painful. And uh, you'll understand this probably more so than, than anyone, really. And the next game we had, so we lost on the Saturday. We flew back from Newcastle. We got back to Dublin. Monday morning, 9am, was coming around the corner. 
and uh, we had Munster in the semi-final of the Pro 14 at the IDS on Saturday. So we had to somehow get through the learning from Saracens, put it to bed, preview Munster, get ourselves in the right cycle of physical and psychological mindset to beat Munster, who have obviously sat and watched us lose and had a weekend off. Yeah. Um, which then was leading to, if we beat Munster, a final in Glasgow, against Glasgow, at Celtic Park, you know, iconic ground. Now, the easy thing to do would have been to not do the review. Listen, that was just a, let's just put that to bed. You know, we, we, we know we, we, we let things slip in the second half, could have done this, that, and the other. Let's move on to Munster because this is another priority. That's the opposite of what we did. You know, the opposite of what we did is, because what we needed to do was talk it through. And this is where, again, I think, you know, where really good coaches can, can understand how to pick their way through that minefield of that review and come up with a positive outcome to get them. In it. And so the actual review was um, scheduled for 11 a.m. But in between times, I met, I met Johnny on his own because he was the captain and I wanted to talk things through with him. I met four of the senior players to talk through my thoughts on the game. Let's call it the meeting before the meeting. Then I met four of the younger players that played and talked it through with them. And then we all met as a group. And by that point, we had some clarity. We had some ideas uh, of what, um, what had happened. I had had my view. I'd got their opinion. I put my hand up and said, listen, maybe perhaps you know, we, could have, we could have prepared you better, could have done this or whatever else. Three or four players said, listen, yeah, I think in hindsight we could have done this. And suddenly there's this safe cultural container, I think it's a good description of it, where it's very private. You know, you've been in those review meetings and there's just you, the team, there's the four walls of the room, there's the projector, there's the analyst, and there's a coach, and that's it. And it is the power in those meetings. It's incredible sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and what people say and how they say it, it is such an important moment, I think, in teams. Um, and, you know, how you, how you dance through the learning. What, how can we learn from this? Listen, I'm not, I'm not holding you... I know you didn't do it on purpose. You know, we're not holding you to account here. Um, and, you know, I don't scrum up with Sam goes, listen, oh, yeah, that wasn't a great box kick. It was too long. Or, or what about this, uh, this defensive set we had? Yeah, I made a mistake. That's my fault. You know, and there's such honest places. And, but then, you, so they say, right, okay, right. We've taken the learning. How can we get better? What can we take from this experience? And then we have a sumo call, should it move on? Because you have to leave that defeat behind you. You have to leave that emotional moment behind you because it'll drag into the Munster game and you'll never get yourself in the right place to win, to beat Munster. And, you know, that was probably one of the, the proudest I've been of the group at Lensdorf. To go from that defeat to the Munster victory to the Glasgow victory was, I thought, was an amazing um, achievement by the players. Yeah, I think that's, that's an indicator and that's a, that's a representation of where that, they are as a group. And I suppose it ties in nicely with the next question around one of these kind of buzzwords that we get, but one that I think is actually really important and particularly interested in how a coach creates the environment of mindfulness because mindfulness is described as the practice of paying attention in the present moment and doing it in, intentionally with non-judgment. And for you to go through some of those review processes, you have to create an environment where players can be mindful, players can review openly and honestly. 
that's not always particularly easy to do. So what sort of things do you put in place? What sort of, uh, again, I was nearly about to use the word culture. What sort of example do you set from a mindful, mindfulness point of view to allow the players to do that honestly? And, allow, and off the back of that, it allows them to progress as people and players. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think, I think the, the way I go about it is I, I, I didn't realize I was maybe doing it, practicing mindfulness. But when I think back to... Um, my teaching career or my early coaching career, you know, at Leeds, um, Saxons, the interim England job, you know, in the Six Nations 2012, all the games that led up to and including the World Cup, you know, and beyond. The ability to stay in the moment and to stay focused um, and not worry about what's happened in the past or what might happen in the future is, is mindfulness for me. That's, that's what I understand it to be. I understand it, the ability to stay there. But it's so hard to do as a coach. And it's even harder to do as a player. You know, let me give you this scenario. You're playing a game and you are, I don't know, 25-20 up and a team is sort of hanging in there, the, 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 the competitor, but you're really on top. You know, you're, you're dominating the game. And then suddenly out of the blue, they get an intercept. Mm. And it's 27-25. Now there's five minutes to go. And you're, and you're thinking, geez, I can't believe that's just happened. And... Yeah, your mind is distracted by, by what's just happened. And then the next thing you're thinking about is, we might not actually lose this game. So you think about the future. So the next line that comes along, you know, you get the call wrong, there's a mental error, the throw's wrong, there's another error. And that's because you as an individual and the team is now distracted by thinking about the past and worrying about the future. So the ability to stay in the moment is key. And one of the things that I was taught by a company called Gazing was staying, it's red to blue, they used to call it. So when you're um, in the blue, you're in the moment. Yeah. And when you're in the red, you think about the past or the future. And um, they, they worked with the uh, All Blacks lost in the quarterfinal of the World Cup in 2007. And Gazing worked with the All Blacks in the lead up to the Home World Cup in 2011. And they developed um, an awareness of red to blue. They also developed cues to get them out of the red, so to speak. Um, so you can see it within the team. You can see it with mm. individuals. I could see it in you. And I could give you a little clip and say, listen, get back in the blue. And you've got your own trigger, which gets you back into the moment. Yeah. That, that, that was my sort of understanding of it. And, and certainly as a coach, I, I try very hard in the context of watching games to stay in the moment and to really concentrate on the game um, and not be distracted by 80,000 people watching your camera on your face. Um, and, you know, you're just trying to concentrate. And so now I'm 45 years old, having learned that. Now, I'm coaching players who are 21 years old. They haven't even thought of that. No. So my, my strategy for developing that in place is using my experience and explaining to them things that have, I've shown where teams have stayed in the moment, individuals have stayed in the moment, or the opposite. Here's an example where a team doesn't. And there's loads of examples in sport or in life where you see it happen. So I don't, we do have a mindfulness session. Um, it's optional, you know, and players do choose to or, or not to, to go to them. But I would say... Our awareness of staying in the moment and being very present at that time and not distracted by the past or the future is a skill that we've learned and we've got better at. It doesn't happen all the time and, you know, everyone's human. Make sure you forgive people if, if they slip because it's so easy to do. You know, we could, even in the environment we're in the moment, in lockdown, you could forever be thinking, geez, what life used to be like or what the, what's the future going to look like? I try and stay in the moment. So listen, let's deal with what we can deal with now, dead A, yeah. at this moment. 
Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I think um, the reason that the question came up was one of my really good pals is, is just done a PhD in mental toughness and this kind of formulates in with the mental toughness. He did a webinar on, on mindfulness and there was about 40 to 50 people on there. And one of the guys at the end who, who, who piped up was a professional rugby player for a, cl- a club in Scotland. And he kind of expressed this feeling, this overwhelming feeling of when he was on the pitch, he would, he would want the game to be over if he played well at about the 45 minute mark. And he already was kind of creeping into that red of, he just wanted it to be over because he knew if he did something wrong, there'd be an opportunity for a coach to drop him. And that for me was an, an amazing indication of how coach and a, culture in inverted commas can create the uh, environment for people to be mindful for him to for him to face those issues around wanting the game to be over before it is because he's worried about what's going to happen on a monday i thought was really really kind of an insight into that that really elite level professional coaching world and and how you create yeah, and, that. And, what it, and what it feels like for players you know the anxiety and the fear of making a mistake yeah. Which is not a trait you want to develop in your teams. You know, you want to develop a team, a team who have got accountability and responsibility, but freedom within that. And and you know, there's nothing worse as a coach where you you say, listen, I want to give you freedom, lads, and, and responsibility, and then you go and try and offload, and it gets dropped, and then <laughs> in the video, what the hell are you doing offloading the ball like that? Uh, so you know, there's a, there's a balance, but equally, the words that you, I mean, again, I come back to the point: the words that you use. In your team meetings, when you are preparing a team, they, the players will listen to everyone. Yeah. They will listen to everyone. And that's the, that's the how bit of coaching. That's the how you communicate. You know, and what a lot of, I think a lot of coaches tend to do is they get really busy preparing for a meeting with reviews and clips and, I don't know, something humorous to entertain the players or whatever. So it's the what. This is my content. This is what I'm going to get through. But they haven't actually thought about how I'm going to say it. They haven't thought about the tone, the intonation, the lowering of the voice, the language they use, their body language. Because as a player, you pick it up at everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, coaches, really good coaches that I've worked with would have the ability to pick those sorts of traits that you've just, you've described and use them for the right occasions. So, you know, if you, you know that if there's a coach who comes in and he's looking almost like passive aggressive, you know, that there's some, there's a message coming that you need to make sure you take on board. I suppose off the back of that, Stuart, one of the things I'm quite keen to discuss that, that you've, you've suggested earlier on that you do, and I, I kind of knew you would, but I'm interested to know the inside of it is the process of reviewing yourself. So it's very easy to review. A, well, I say it's very easy. It's not very easy. It, it's an easier, job to review a team off the back of the stats that are available versus the feelings that you felt when things happens the old process versus outcome when you've reviewed the team on a Sunday whether it's win lose or draw how do you attack the process of reviewing yourself and what you did during the week I think I'd, I would attack it on a on a daily basis and, and and almost as soon as a meeting finishes or a training session finishes a case vision I'm walking back and I'm constantly replaying in my mind things I said things I did, the way the session went, did the intended outcome, did I get the intended outcome? And I think, again, I go back to my sort of teaching analogy. So, you know, it's nine o'clock in the morning, you've got basketball lesson, you're prepared to do your, you know, your zone defence or whatever it is with your, with your kids. Then that lesson finishes and the kids are piling in the change room, the next kids are piling in and you're, you're organising, you know, all this sort of stuff. But in your mind, you're already replaying what's happening in that lesson subconsciously. Um, and then the next lesson happens. And so you do that five times a day. And then you yeah. get in your car and you drive home. Now, um, one of the keys for me during my teaching career was the drive I had from work to home was 35 minutes. 
And this is pre-mobile phones, you know, slash distractions. You know, you can't <laughs> chat on the phone. So usually for me, it was, it was radio off, drive. So it, that was your review time? It's your, my reflection time. Then I went to, when I was studying old, I became the academy manager um, at Leeds. And that was in Kirkstall. So I lived in Headingley, Kirkstall to Headingley, one mile. Around that time, my um, daughter was born, 2000, and my son was born in 2001. So, you know, we, I would leave the house, um, nappies, you know, disrupted night's sleep, chaos, <laughs> jump in the car, do the session, jump back in the car, two minutes later I'm home, you know, reflection window, gone. Um, and I'm not blaming you know, my wife, my children, or I'm just making the point that you have to create space for reflection. You have to create the time. Now, in Dublin, I think I've become a better coach, ironically, by commuting from Leeds to Dublin. So I've got a one-bedroom flat in Dublin. So I don't know, training finishes on, I get out of the office, five o'clock, six o'clock on a Monday, busy day, review the game, preview the opposition, training session, one-to-ones, set myself up for the big Tuesday session, um, go back to my flat in Dublin, buy some food. I don't have a TV. Um, obviously, I can watch anything you know, on Netflix or want, but I never do. It's radio off, sit down, think, reflect, plan, get ready for Tuesday. Tuesday's the big day. I know at the end of the week as a coach, my, my involvement in the team is going to lessen to virtually 0% because by then, the players are driving it. And, my, and, and you know, other than a role on during the match, you know, helping them with substitutions or half-time messaging. I see my work done at the start of the week. So I'm, I'm really in that sort of um, preparation, doing it, reflecting, thinking, how can I deal with this situation? How can I help this player get better? How can I train, coach the team better? It's absolutely critical. And it, if you don't give yourself those windows and you don't find the vehicle to do it, now it might be for you walking the dog when you do your, your best thinking or driving a car, or, or, or running, or whatever it is. You have to give yourself that reflection window, because that's how you develop insight, which then becomes experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what, you know, one of the, the process that I kind of try and approach it as a player, and I suppose that has kind of fed into my inexperienced and young coaching career with the amateur club over here at Worcester, was plan, prepare, act slash play, and then review. And that review slash reflection period is really important. And, you know, good players have the ability to do that uh, in whatever form it is that they need it. And I suppose off the, off the back of that, one no, of the questions. So, so, go ahead. Um, yes, um, go ahead. So, but also get feedback. Yeah. You know, now, now in, intuitively, the more experience you get, the more feedback you get, think, geez, that session didn't go the way I wanted, or that meeting, I didn't quite handle it the way I wanted to handle it. But equally, you know, a bit like, so we started this podcast with a chat before we went live and, um, I'd done that defence seminar and I said to you, what do you think? And that's my way of wanting to know from a player's perspective, give me some feedback on what you heard and what you learned. Um, and, and you weren't the only one who I've asked that question to because I'm, I was speaking to a screen, you know, you don't have the verbal cues, the body language, the nodding of the heads, the disengagement, yeah. you know, in this virtual world we live in at the moment, in a, in a team environment, a lot of those cues that you pick up are often non-verbal from the playing group anyway. Um, but um, yeah, feedback, getting feedback from people you trust and having the courage and the confidence to, to take it the way it's intended. You know, don't be offended if someone says, well, actually, I thought it was a pretty shit session, to be honest. Yeah. yeah I thought the same, actually. I'll, <laughs> I'll fix that up next week, don't worry. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I like that. The insight's important. Um, seeking feedback from someone you trust is the most important thing you said there because everybody has an opinion um, and you have to be able to kind of filter the ones that you really value and the ones that you don't. Um, and I suppose off the back of that, um, it's it's a broad question. I've put down some of my views and again, it's in my infancy with it, but I asked the question, what makes a good coach? question mark and that's kind of very open-ended and you can go whatever direction you want some of the things that I put down personally and I'll go first before it seems like I'm just agreeing and stealing your answers but self-awareness was number one emotional intelligence vision and charisma because I feel like you have to have an idea of where you want to go and you have to have the ability I suppose it's the how and to facilitate players to head that direction and then the, the subject do you think it's possible to be a coach and not be charismatic I personally think that coaches have to have a certain degree of people skills and charisma fits into that and charisma doesn't mean like you're the life and soul of the party and you're always the one joking it means that you can get your message across to a player i've, I've had coaches who have never shouted at me coaches who would probably not speak louder than a whisper but they have the ability from a charisma point of view to get their message across to me and, and make me want to do it for them yeah, that's, yeah. That's, i think my worry about the word charisma is that there's coaches might be listeners thinking well I'm quite introverted, really. You know, I've, I've seen some amazingly charismatic coaches who are brilliant at entertaining the players and, you know, could almost be on stage. You know, it's amazing. I'll question their effectiveness, though. So I think, I don't think you need to be charismatic in I think you need to be engaging. I think there's a difference between the two words. I think to be engaging and to have, you have to have moments of inspiration and some inspirational quality, but you don't need to be Churchillian in every speech that you give, you know. You just need to create an environment where people would willingly follow you. And they're engaged in what you have to say because of, of, of how you say it and your personality and you show you care for them and you show. But yeah, sorry, I interrupted your list of all the great coaches. <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine. It's, it's good insight for me. I, I think charisma is, is meant in tandem with the other ones that I've mentioned. Um, and it's not meant, I have to stress, it's not meant in, in the sense of the, the joker and the leader and the showman. It's, it is meant in a sense that... If, you, if someone has charisma for me, they have the ability to make me want to work for them. And, and not, not in the sense that they're on the show reel or whatever, but the, the last one for me was subject knowledge, which is an obvious one. Um, and I'm talking about elite level here, but you have to know to some degree what you're talking about. So off the back of my four... Uh, <laughs> you might need a bit more than some degree. I tell you, if you came right. to Leinster, you didn't know your subject knowledge, you'd have Johnny Sexton who'd boot you out the door. I'm, I'm interested to know what your, what your kind of headlines are because... Yeah. I've given you mine and we've picked them apart and I'd love to get the opportunity to hear what yours are and, and, and have an idea. I didn't finish picking it apart. I was still, I was just getting going. Keep uh, going anyway. there. Yeah, absolutely. Let's crack on. I'll, I'll go. So I think credibility is important in leadership and credibility is important as, as a coach. And people have to, to listen to the message, you have to believe the messenger. You know, so for you to, to believe in what I'm saying, you have to believe in me. Because credibility is ultimately the foundation of leadership. Now, I have this credibility theory that's not, I've, I've, I'm not that I've ever seen described anywhere, but if I, let me give you um, an example. So if, if the most credible coach you've ever worked with on a scale of not to 100 is, say, 80 out of 100 or 90, you know, they've got great technical knowledge, very good self-awareness, motivated, you know, da, 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 da. As a young coach, so you're as a young coach, you're coming in and you're now joining Leinster's coaching team as forwards coach. You wouldn't come in at 80, would you? You'd come in as at maybe 20. Um, Yes, you've played the game professionally. You've got good technical knowledge. You can coach some of the technical skills. Um, you're learning. You've learned to be a coach, but you're still, you know, you're interested, so to speak. We can all develop credibility and we can all gain points. So I see, I see um, your ability to gain credibility 
as a coach is a point scoring system. So every time you do um, a session well, a meeting well, um, you're self-aware enough to know your mood is effect- how your mood is affecting the group, you gain points. So maybe you come 21, 22, 23, 24 points. And then you make a mistake, you know, a meeting didn't go that well or session didn't go the way you planned it. You lose a couple of points, 25, 24, 23. But then you gain some more points. And eventually you're on 30. And then it becomes 40. And your credibility in the eyes of the people you're leading is gradually rising. And then suddenly you go from academy coach to assistant forwards coach. And you're working with senior players. And again, they look at you. Who's this guy? And you gain more points because you do your good first couple of sessions and et cetera, et cetera. And gradually your credibility increases to a point whereby, you know, suddenly you're 50, 60, 70. Now, let's flip that on his head and let's talk about the coach who has come in, who's got, I know, medals in the back pocket um, and uh, a couple of trophies. And in, 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 the, in your mind, you're thinking, this guy is amazing. He's got great credibility. But then his meetings aren't that detailed, his technology question, um, his relationship building's poor, his coach session's poor, his timekeeping's poor, you know, 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, 30. Yeah, exactly. It works both ways. So if you've got that analogy in your mind, what are the four ways I would set about trying to improve my credibility as a coach? Um, I'd be honest. I think honesty is key. Now, Obviously, sometimes you need to be, you can't be brutally honest the whole time, you know, but you have to be honest. You have to have integrity, strong integrity. And secondly, you need to be forward thinking and planning. So I think if I was a player and I was working for a coach who came in and sort of Monday morning, geez, who've got this weekend, boys? And what's the, uh, what do you think of their line out? And you can see they've not really done the work and not really prepared. Mm. And, you know, and when I say forward thinking and planning, I'm not just talking about the next game. I'm talking the next week, the next month, the next year, the next three years. You know, we're going to build a, a dynasty here. This is what the future is going to look like. And someone described it to me as like a, a leader with a telescope and a microscope. So you can see the detail. We can see the detail of your line out and, you know, everything else. But also we can see in the future, like, we're, we're at Worcester Warriors here. We're going to become, you know, a top six team in Europe within the next two, two years. And this is how we're going to do it. So you've got that. Technical excellence, um, which you've already said. You know, you can't... I think the players, obviously, they don't expect you to know everything. But for you to stand in front of them, you have to understand the nuances of the game. You have to understand the detail around the game. Now, they'll, they'll adapt to your philosophy. If you're coming to coach a slightly different style from a previous coach, as long as you can back it up with evidence, as long as you can back it up with justification and, and detail and explanation. Yeah. Um, if you haven't got that clarity in your mind of your own personal philosophy before you start, I think you're in trouble. So you do definitely technical excellence is key. And then the final thing is, do what you say you're going to do. Don't make promises you can't deliver. Because every time you say, I say to you, right, we'll be, I'll do this um, podcast with you at 9am. And then suddenly you're texting me saying, oh, you forgot the podcast or you said you'd read me back or, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, he's lost a little bit of credibility. There's just a few points in my mind there. So they're the four I'll, I'll, I'll build, build it on. But all the other things you said are hugely relevant as well. You know, self-awareness, social awareness, emotional intelligence, technical excellence they're all important yeah I, I like the idea of that kind of sliding scale because it's almost like how i try and perceive pre-season from a from a player's point of view pre-season is like an opportunity for you to bolt on some additional you know 
skills or, or, or points on your physical strength or your speed and to try and adapt that to coaching is something I think is, is really useful and definitely it slides both ways for sure because you know you'll have experienced coaches who come with a big reputation but when you meet them or when you work with them you can kind of almost think well they're not like everything I kind of hoped they would be and then they slide down that scale and I suppose eventually there comes a tipping point where the players stop playing for the coach yeah. and then there's a meeting behind the coach's back and you sit on the board they sit and work it and I've seen that happen as well yeah, not the not nice side of of the uh, of the experience, but I suppose it ties in nicely with this because I'm interested to know from your experience, Stuart, what coaches you grew up with. I know there's a strong association with Brian Ashton and some of the coaches that maybe you worked with in your younger years and your formative years, and maybe that some of that you're working with now or have worked with in in the, in the midpoint. But what sort of traits you've tried to adapt and steal off them, or perceptions of the way that they work that you think have worked well? Just your kind of experience of, of the coaching and that, that constant process of trying to make yourself better, and which coaches have, have worked and reflected really well on that. Yeah, there's hundreds really. Um, there's the, the the ones that would. There's different categories. I think there's there's the ones that um, who, who I've studied who didn't even know I existed. You know, like a John Wooden, a Bill Walsh, the American football coaches, basketball yeah. coaches. They're the ones who were formative in my development um, as a young coach. And that would go back to my Tony Rolt, my teacher at school, um, to those teacher trainers from university, um, to the people I worked with at Kettlehop High School, to Phil Davis when I was at Leeds, you know, when I was the academy manager, giving first, to Kevin Bowring, um, who um, was head of coach development, who's guided me, to Bill Bezik, who mentored me. Um, to Brian Ashton, who mentored the academy coaches at the time, who had a strong influence on me. To a lot of those academy coaches who who've gone on to become top end coaches now. You know, when we were in the early two thousands. To Daryl Powell and Simon Middleton at Leeds. You know, when we coached together um, um, during my youngest years as a as a championship and, and Premiership coach. And then obviously that leads into England uh, and joining the RFU. And one of the huge benefits of being at the RFU at the time was you get to go around 12 premiership clubs. So you go around, you analyse the academies, you spend time with the senior team, you spend time with Martin Johnson, Brian Smith, John Wells, uh, Mike Ford, uh, Dave Allred, you meet people like that, you observe them, you have your own international experience as a Saxons coach against other good coaches. Um, and Andy Farrell teams up um, and, and Paul Hull um, did a Churchill Cup. And then that leads to England. And then you're playing against the best coaches in the world. And you're looking at how they do things and how they build their culture and how they build their game plan. And, and so there's just so many, so many people out there who shape your philosophy. But the key thing is, you've got to be open-minded to, to, to take something from them. You know, time and time again, I meet people in leadership positions. And they never ask the question, what do you think? If you're playing us, how do you try and beat us? You know, they're, they're the questions that I always ask. You know, how do you think we did? You know, where do you think our weaknesses are? Um, what do you think about our defensive system? Is there anything you'd change if you were us? How do you, you know? So, and then even if you're not asking those questions outright, you should be always thinking, you know, the, the ones that I think sometimes struggle is, this is the way it is. And, and I'm not going to learn from anyone, you know, because I know I'm right. And I think that limited mindset, fixed mindset, let's call it, as opposed to growth mindset, which yeah. is the Carol Dweck stuff. Um, is the key to be successful in life, you know, not just in coaching, but in leadership as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's quite evident that you've done that because I know you spent time in the Southern Hemisphere with all sorts of teams and, and sports. And it's something that I'm quite keen to explore whenever my rugby career does eventually come to an end. 
I'm interested to know how do these guys in football or Aussie rules or the NFL, I know you spent time over there in the NFL, working with coaches in different environments, how they speak to players, how they structure their meetings, how they break into sub mini groups. There's loads of learning out there for, for people when they want to do it. And I think that fixed and growth mindset is something that we were going to discuss. And I suppose now is as good a time as any. So as a coach, when you meet these guys, what sort of processes are you going to, are you going through? Is it obviously the observations massive and then there's that reflection period again? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I always try and go into those sorts of environments where I'm trying to learn from someone else by giving something first. Okay. Um, so, you know, trying to either pass on your experiences or just, just give, give them something. So you're not just coming in there to the environment. Now, asking good questions, I think, is key. Being quiet is important, you know, observing. There's a big difference between lots of different sports. You know, the, the Atlanta Falcons environment would be very different from, say, an Australian rugby league environment, which would be very different from an England football environment. So there's, but there's no right or wrong way, you know, and you can pick up so much from each individual one. But the one thing I'd say to any coaches out there is the way to do that, you might think, how on earth am I going to end up getting to an American football team? I'm teaching at the moment. I've got zero chance of achieving that. Well, I was teaching. But what I did um, when I was in my late 20s, I did my coach education courses um, and they did two things. They gave me some technical knowledge, obviously, a lot of technical knowledge and how to coach and everything else. But they also developed um, a network of people who were on the course with me, who I built relationships with, which then led to another relationship. I was proactive in that I uh, would get hold of coaches who would you mind you know, if I picked your brains on something or do you mind if I come in the environment or the organization? 99 times out of 100, everyone says yes, you know, because they're happy to help. They want to learn more been in the position that, you, you know, you've been in as a young coach. Then your credibility, you know, and your, your, you coach well and you go back to your day job and you, you know, try and improve. Then an opportunity comes up for a promotion. Um, or, I mean, the Leeds example was a great example in that I did the Level 5 Coaching Award and I was the youngest coach on it. And every other coach was virtually international and I was academy manager. So I sort of blagged my way on it, really. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, that opened doors. Um, and the report from that, that course arrived on the CEO's desk on the day that Phil Davis left Leeds. Now, I'm 99% certain if that report hadn't arrived on the desk of the CEO on that day, I wouldn't have been coaching Leeds. He'd have wow. gone for some other, you know, coach from, who had more experience than me. I was just the academy manager. But I think it persuaded him to at least interview me and give me a shot. And then... You also, as a coach, have to be prepared at some point to put your head above the parapet. You know, it's easy, it's easy to give comment from the cheap seats. Yeah. It's easy, you know, to, to sit there and go, when well, there's I'm nothing riding on it. And this and, you know, you know I, could, I could have stayed at that point being the academy manager. Um, but I, I, you know, put myself in the environment. We, all the players that left, there were seven players left at Leeds. And we had to build a new team, promote from the championship in one first go. And not dissimilar from when Jono left England. You know, there wasn't really a plan. And I went to the board and, and said, well, why don't I do the interim job for the Six Nations? Just hold the fort, try and change a few things. Um, and then you can appoint whoever you think is the best coach. So pushing, you know, pushing open doors, um, um, meeting people, getting off your backside and doing it. You know, the, there's, no, there's no magic wand to wave. If you sit there and wait for it to happen, you'll get to a certain point, but I don't think you'll ever reach your full, full potential. You know? Something like what you're doing now. You know, I, part of the reason I agreed to do this is because you're, you're being proactive and you're trying to one, upskill yourself, and two, make a difference. So both, both great qualities. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I think it's, it, it ties in nicely with the chat we had with John Smith last week. And, and one of the things he discussed around professional rugby players was this need for them to be proactive and take things into their own hands. And I think it's really, really important. And 
there should be more talked about it at the moment because there's a lot of guys who do sit at home and play PlayStation like John described. So um, moving slightly into some, in tandem and a segue kind of, but into, into the actual rugby ins and outs. And I appreciate you're not going to be able to divulge loads of your tactics and thoughts and, and processes. But one of the things uh, we'll start off with is, is warm up because it's something that I find super, super interesting because being a bit of the, the rugby noz I am, I, I was watching some of the build up to the Irish rugby kind of open sessions that they record and the way they structured their warm-ups was really interesting to me because they were allowing so for any young coaches or players who are, who are listening to this a little bit of insight on how to try, try and be proactive with the way that you improve your warm-ups the, the Irish rugby system it looked from the videos that I saw had many session skill sessions available to them tied in with this kind of athletic readiness that you have to have and I really like the idea that the players are getting opportunities to improve really small closed skills in the build-up to a big session where they're trying to do a team focus so there's that individual focus tied in with the athletic readiness into that kind of team focus I'm wondering do you have any thoughts on the kind of warm-up structures do you have any ideas on how teams can best prepare for that session to get everything they need out of it because there's nothing worse than going into a session and thinking like, oh, holy shit, this is the first time I've touched a rugby ball. Yeah, yeah. No, I think what you just described is, is, is exactly what you should try and achieve as a coach. Now, it's easy said that, you know, with, with Ireland or England or Leinster, you know, you've got a multitude of balls and cones and support <laughs> staff, you know. If you're Monday, you're Tuesday night, Thursday night, and there's you, 30 lads and two balls, it's <laughs> <laughs> freezing cold on it. January evening, <laughs> you know, so yeah, in an ideal world, that's what you'd strive for. Exactly what you've just described, you know, technique development outside of the coaching window so that when you come to the actual session, you can coach flat out, you know, yeah. with intensity. Now there's going to be other times to coach technique. You know, we'd be very creative in um, using gym sessions. I mean, you've got the barn at Worcester, you know, there must be loads of indoor stuff you guys do, I would assume. So a lot of the technique, you know, tackle tech, rook clear out, line out throw in, walkthroughs, you can do inside really, you know, in a professional environment. It's a lot different, as I say, with, with club coaching Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. But yeah, that's, that's what you, you try and achieve. So a lot of the technique stuff done in the warm-up outside of the session so that the main warm-up prepares you to go straight into the rugby session. And, you know, we, I've seen coaches who delegate uh, warm-ups to conditioners who then become sort of like associate coaches who then do like handling drills and this that and the other and, and our, our conditions won't do that they, they wouldn't think they're equipped they don't see it as their remit and neither do I so their job is to help the players get athletically ready I speak to the head conditioner saying listen this is going to be tough today there's a bit of contact can you make sure they're, they're good to go with body-wise as well we want them flat out we're going to start flat out Let's go. I love it. I, I just watched that and I thought that is a real indication of a, of a team perform, a team preparing for an elite level, high intensity session. And I really like the idea of it. Okay, so, so briefly off the back of that, this idea of tactical periodization, something that has been, as a player, you're kind of ignorant to it, if I'm honest. And since I've gone into the coaching, it's something that I've become increasingly more aware of. And tactical periodization sounds really fancy, but what it essentially is, listening to a chat that the Rabbitohs head coach, Anthony Siebel, talked about, it's about facilitating aspects of physical preparation tied in with the tactical, technical, and the mental aspects. So it's bringing all the aspects of what, what we need to get right before we go into a game in tandem and at the right times throughout the week. Is that a fair summarization of what that is? <laughs> Say no, because listen, it's all a learning aspect. I don't mind. I'm just smiling because um, sometimes as coaches, we can create words and create... create I mean, I'm, the reason I'm, I'm smiling because there's the theory of coaching 
And, and when, you, when you're, I'm speaking to the coaching academics out there, I sometimes think, am I speaking the same language here? You know, is this, is this, I've coached for this amount of time and they come up with words I've never heard of. And I'm not saying tactical periodization is a word I've never heard of. Call, call no. it, but, but yeah, I think I prefer your second description than the first, you know, the antecedent one, because I think that explains what, what, what it is, you know. Absolutely. It, basically, I, I've never used that word personally. But if you said to me, the second part, you know, is that what your sessions look like? Yes, that's, that's, that's what they look like. So they are physically, mentally, emotionally, technically and tactically challenging, and they're very games-based in their approach. So I would, I would constantly try and replicate game scenarios in training um, so they become hardwired in the players. And the movement patterns that, that I do in training are the similar ones to the, that will occur in a game. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not for one second suggesting that I'm running around the one these on a Tuesday night talking about tactical periodization. But in the build-up for this and in my head in terms of trying to construct, you know, you have ideas and you write things down and you... you I write down like what it would look like for me if I was in charge of the Worcester Warriors because I want the Worcester Warriors to be better. So one of the things that tied in with that was, what, and in its simplest form, it's doing certain things at the right times throughout the week that ties in with certain aspects of the game. So the, 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 the example that Anthony Seabold gave, which I absolutely loved, was high-speed running, kick-chase, go hand-in-hand hand because you're going to be covering 50 to 60 metres if you've got a scrum half that can kick it that well, and you're going to be running at high speeds. So how, my question is, Stuart, is how, as the head coach of Leinster, do you tie in aspects of the physical that tie in nicely with the aspects of the tactical and technical that you're in charge of. And then you throw in obviously the mental and the emotional, but how does that all come together? Do you so, use Monday as a reviewing and a learning day and then Tuesday is your big day or what does that look like? Yeah, yeah. no, I'll come back to that. But let me ask you a question. So would you, if you're a coach now, I'm to Warriors, okay. um, would you use uh, GPS as a guide for setting your session? So would you, would you set your conditioner beforehand? Right, your condition says, right, I want to achieve X amount of high-speed running meters. The total volume of the session, I want to be around about 4 or 5K. I want a certain spike here. You've got 40 minutes of which um, we're going to do six minutes on defense, 12 minutes on attack. We're going to break into some subgroups of uh, three where we're going to do some rook, tackle, and passing technique. And then we're going to finish off some set piece. Is that how you start in a second? So my impression of, um, well, I suppose the, the, the opinion that I'm formulating is GPS is, is, should be used as a guide to, to prevent overworking. So I think GPS should be used in, in, in a way that we set at, at the targets, rightfully so, but I don't think GPS determines whether you've had a good session or not. I think the review process of a training session, which I would do every day when I get home, tied in with some of the GPS stats, because if the GPS could be used to show that I haven't hit a high speed over 90% this week, that leaves me at higher risk to go and, you know, pull a hammy at the weekend. But at the same time, we have to, we have to replicate and train at a level that's probably above what we're going to be expected to do in a match to feel in, in any, well, it's not never going to feel comfortable, but to be able to perform and execute with the best chance in a game. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm, leading to is asking you the question do you believe that coaching is an art or a science i don't think it's a science i don't think it's a science because i think there's scientists who are designed to to weigh in with opinions my impression of what coaching is in in a kind of umbrella term is my job is to look after the improvement of the rugby but at the same time it would be it would be to take opinions from the scientists the medical trainers the strength and conditioners and then formulate what that picture looks like for me so i would say there's an element of science in it but but i think that science has to be provided from people with expertise the word art it, 
I'm not quite sure what it means if I'm really honest with you, Stuart. Uh, is, that, is that it's 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 constructed with feel and and you know um, you know you you've you're not reliant on data to drive your session content planning. I mean, my my personal belief is that coaching is is an art supported by science, okay. not the other way around. And and that's a point. That's why I was asking you the sort of leading question um, because yeah. you know I've worked in environments or worked with coaches or worked with heads of SNC who who try and make it sometimes too complicated. Really, uh, if you came and looked at you know a Monday Tuesday at Leinster, we we look at Charlie Higgins is the head of athletic performance. He is he gives me a, bra- a a basic guideline of the intensity and time that he thinks appropriate for the playing group, and he is all over the science. You know, and they've got the yeah. GPS and you know the the analyst guys and they're, they're, they're coding everything and monitoring everyone's wellness and well-being and load and everything else. So, and they'll pull out players if they think that, you know, there's a risk of a hammy or this, that, and the other. And obviously we 100% support every decision they make. We trust them implicitly. And that relationship, that co-relationship between your um, sports science staff and your coaching staff is absolutely key. And I think one of the reasons why um, teams struggle sometimes, and you wouldn't never see this as a player, is the dysfunctionality between your medical team, your coaching team, and your S&C team, um, and the lack of alignment there. And, and, and you know, that's why I believe a head of overall athletic performance who, who can bring the two departments together, the, and, uh, the, the medical and the S&C, and then link that to the coaching team is absolutely critical. Because otherwise, you have a very siloed-based approach. Anyway, slight digression. But so back to the, the point on a Monday and a Tuesday, I get given, you know, pretty much free reign to do to do what I want. And in terms of the the content, I use my experience, my gut instinct to guide my decision making about how I'm going to formulate that session content. So sometimes yeah. um, it might be a Tuesday session. I might be more defense focused than attack focused. Sometimes I might start with an element of technique, passing, catching. And um, sometimes I go straight into games. Sometimes the parameters of the games will change. A lot of the times, we'll, we'll rope, we'll, the selection of the teams is important. How many players we've got trained is important. Um, what size field I'm going to play on. Uh, what I feel the playing group need. Do we need a bit of contact? Do we need to um, work on defence, work on attack? But by and large, that session content comes down to me. The assistant coach, the, 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 the backs coach, the forwards coach, and the other coaches, they support that session. And then we go into unit stuff, which is more um, forwards and back split uh, on a Tuesday. But... You know, we make, we make that session on a Tuesday um, tough. You know, we make it demanding. We make a, probably a lot more decisions and a higher speed than any game would ever be. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why we um, were successful at Leinster. Um, I think we, we work hard on cohesion. We have a mindset that everyone should be involved in the session, irrespective of whether they played at the weekend or not, because clearly the team's decided by then. So it's, it's everyone's involved. It's, it's rarely stopped only for very short drink breaks or quick chat. I shoot corrections the whole time. And I spend a lot of time thinking about it um, in, in preparation for doing it. There's an element of variety within there. So it's never the same, but there's repetition as well in the, the movement patterns, et cetera, et cetera, to give us our flow in defense and our flow in attack. And the set piece piece, you know, the structured part of the game comes at the end of that session, but we've walked through and prepared for that on the Monday leading into the Tuesday. Yeah, I think I think that's a great insight into how it works. I think, I suppose the, the, the term Tuesdays, you're probably sick hearing that term, but what you're actually creating on a Tuesday is an environment for the players to prepare themselves the best they can to be as accurate as possible on a Saturday or a Sunday or Friday, whenever you play. Um, 
loads of people try and replicate it. Loads of people are trying to replicate that Tuesday. When it, like Tuesday as a professional rugby player is the hardest day of the week by country mile because you're tying in aspects of set piece and usually a defensive focus tied in with the rest of it. And, and the, the balance of what you do in terms of running the defense and the attack is something I'm really interested in because in tandem with the, the, the Tuesday's term or, or the hard Tuesday session, as we'll call it, how do you balance overworking your players versus also at the same time creating a, a, a platform for them to be able to go out and perform at the best they can? Yeah, it's probably, it's probably misnomer to say that Tuesday is the only hard day. I mean, when, Monday, um, we would still have 20 minutes of, wouldn't necessarily all be flat out, but it'd be, you know, there'd be intensity on a Monday and, it, and the decision-making element that the players know that have to turn up for. You know, they wouldn't just, let's have a little jog through and pass a few balls around on a Monday. And on a Thursday, exactly the same. You know, you, you would you'd say the same. You know, you would, you would really work hard on a Thursday, albeit for a shorter window. Um, so if I give you an example of what it looks like for me, maybe you can give your impression. Is, is that a fair way to do it? Because um, I'm not, yeah, I, I, again... It's also, it's also probably appropriate to say, you know, other teams in the Premiership and in England, you know, would train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off, comes from Friday, play Saturday. Absolutely. There's different models out there. It's not to say that it always has to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, Thursday. It's obviously always dependent on when we play matches too. So there's a huge room for, for, for movement in that. But, but in my impression, you know, Mondays I get moving and a learning day. Uh, this is this is my again my unform my formulated infancy of a coaching aspect. But Monday is a get as a review, get moving, and a learning day preparation for the next game. Tuesday is going to be probably the most physical day of the week because it's an opportunity for you to get uh, aspects of the game in furthest away from the next game. Wednesday is traditionally a day off, but it has to be it has to involve some formats of recovery and reviewing of the Monday and Tuesday. And then Thursday for me, if I was a coach, Thursday is the dress rehearsal. Now, everybody, we still use captain's runs, but Thursday is the last opportunity I perceive it that a coach can have a real influence on how the team is going to prepare or play at the weekend. So Thursday is a super, super important day. And Thursday is probably one of the fastest sessions uh, with faster session with less contact. That's my perception. And then what's your view on that? And and then also a super, probably slightly controversial question. Are captain's runs dated? Do we need captain's runs anymore in this day and age? How do you mix them up? Some weeks you do a walkthrough or some weeks you just say, lads, we're okay. We don't need it. We're ready to go. Yeah, I think think, um, the Southern Hemisphere, their, their big day would be Thursday. Mm. not Tuesday okay so they would go you know hard on a Thursday yet as I say there's teams in England who are going Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Thursday off Captain's Run Friday so all the work's from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Wednesday's a tough day so it's interesting isn't it you know and I think the important thing out there for coaches is there is no right or wrong way really Um, it's it's what suits your coaching team your playing group you know players like routine there's definitely an element of that as well they like the familiarity of the week they like, you know, our Friday, Saturday, Friday turnaround for us. Um, you know, we go in Monday, have Tuesday off, Wednesday, Thursday, play Friday. We don't like that as coaches, really, because we have one less day. Um, but the players still prefer to have that, that day off. Um, yeah. You're right, you're right in, the, in, the, in the sense that I believe that your, your biggest impact as a coach is at the start of the week. And your, you should hand over ownership of the team to the playing group, you know, on that Thursday. Um, and that starts at the very start of that day in the meetings and the way in which people start speaking and, um, and start owning the team. And then Fridays, the players like it. Well, certainly the players at Leinster like it. You know, they, 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 like, they like the familiarity of going to, because we train away from the RDS, it's nice to go to the RDS to feel, to feel it. 
um, to be there, to be in the changing rooms, just the, the crack together on a, on a Friday. Um, if we play at the Aviva, they, they, they like the, ex the experience of that as well. There's a lot of good memories from, from games there and Ireland games as well. Um, away from home, particularly in grounds we've never been to, you know, you wouldn't give too much away in your captain's run. But again, they like, they like to go there and see and feel what it's going to be like. So I think, I think the players, you know, and it's the players' call, isn't it? You know, at the end of the day, if they say, listen, this is worse time, then we won't, we won't do it. But the players at Leinster still like that Friday. The big question from a coaching point of view is, what's the correlation between a good captain's run and a good game? Uh, and uh, been involved in loads of bad captains. Exactly. And, 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 yeah, and actually, sometimes it just focuses the mind, doesn't it? You know, you sit there as a coach and think, oh, geez, we're not on it. And actually, the three or four drop balls and you know the lack of synchronization and the team cohesion actually sparks the boys into into a real positive mindset the day after. Equally, everything's you know, it's a brilliant captain's run, right? We're on fire. <laughs> you <laughs> like that? Yeah, concede a try first play. They could. Yeah. Uh, it's the same in a warm up. Team won't start the game. You know, you could you can. You can sense it sometimes, and you, you, again, you'll feel this as a player. We're not quite on it here, you know. And, and it's 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 a vibe in the changing room. It's a vibe in the warm up, uh, and it's very difficult to claw back from that point. Very difficult. Um, you can do it. It can be done, but you know, by then, your coaching intervention, your coaching impact is, is limited. Your coaching, the the development of the mindset, the development of the the game plan, the development of the the attitude you're going to take into the weekend is driven by what you do at the start of the week from a coaching point of view. And then what you're really striving for is a really good group of senior players who are going to drive it at the end of the week. And it's not, you don't often have that, you know, you've got to be very lucky to have that, that group of players who can do that for you as well. Um, and, you know, the age and the maturity of the group is dependent on that, I think, sometimes. And also the level of, you know, the, the identity of the team, the cohesion of the team, the connections they have with each other. It's very difficult sometimes to develop all those things overnight you know fast forming teams you know sometimes can achieve success but in rugby because it's such a team sport it's the longevity of teams I think um, that, that breeds success yeah a, a great answer I think one of the further points to the training aspect is something I'm quite interested in um, is around the contact levels in training and I wonder if you have any opinions on this because a lot's been said around the the NFL and the some suggestions coming from player associations and so on around how much is too much contact when will there become a level of um, monitored contact levels so there's in the nfl i'm aware that there's you know certain amount of hits a week for each player and then there's kind of a limit put on it what i think that will do if, if it ever came into rugby would be firstly contact's important it prepares you to go and play the game i fully understand that but it will it will demand coaches to be more creative in the way that they coach certain aspects of the game yeah i mean just on the nfl point when i was at Atlanta Falcons I was there in pre-season and they had a ban on contact during their pre-season camp because of the amount of contact they did in the previous pre-season and I asked the question I said how do they monitor that well there's cameras on top of their their offices that are not Atlanta Falcons monitors they are NFL. the NFL and they're watching and you know, the players union and everything else so I mean personally we do very little I mean I, I can't see the point personally now, forwards are different. Obviously, you know, I'm not saying, you, you know, in a forwards unit, but I think there's an acceptance, you know, on a Tuesday, you're going to maybe do some live mall, some, some pick and go stuff, live, live scrum, you know, that, I think that's necessary and part of it. But in my sessions, you know, the attack versus defense sessions, you know, why would I use all the emotional and physical energy on a Tuesday when I want them to save it for a Saturday? Secondly, you're, you're, you're more likely to cause injuries. Um, and thirdly, I think it's just tough for players to constantly get themselves into that 
mental readiness that you need to do to, to have contact sessions during the week. So um, I trust that by not going hard on the contact, now I'm not, sometimes we'll be shoulder on and sometimes we're through pads and everything else, but you know, there's a respectfulness and there's, a, there's an importance, I think, that coaches need to understand in explaining to the players the different levels of training and, and the games that you want to play. So touch and pass is touch and pass. Shoulder on is shoulder on. What does that mean? What does that mean in terms of behaviours of you guys? Live at the contact area or semi-contested contact area or whatever it is. That, that has to be described to the players because often what you find is what shoulder on to one player means something completely different to another player. Then you get frustration. Then the session escalates. And then you get people falling out with each other. And then someone whacks someone and then you get an injury. And, <laughs> and it's actually been coach-created. Yeah. It's not been player-created. It's been coach-created because you've not been clear into the parameters of the session. I, I totally agree. And I think uh, in, in on reflection, so my sessions at the one days on a Tuesday night, there was one session in particular where I got this completely wrong. I just took for granted that they knew what shoulders on meant. So I started the session, whatever the focus was, and the boys were like, yeah, nice and square, nice and square. And then you see one person go through the gain line on a square shoulder and I mean all hell broke loose. Boys were melting each other left, right and centre and I'm standing there going with the head coach looking at me going, what's going on? And I'm going, oh my goodness, I don't know what's happened. I had to bring them in. You have to give a demonstration of what shoulder on means. It means if your arm's out straight to the side of your body and you, and that's not a tackle, that's not good enough. So it's a very good, it's a very but, good but, point but, you but make. Also, but also, you know, explain all that before you go out to the session. You, know, you want to be, be in the flow in the session. You want to be keeping intensity high and not having your voice all the time trying to explain the session. Absolutely. I think it was a massive learning point for me because I took for granted that that, that group knew what shoulders on meant. And I think uh, we very clearly kind of summed it up now. So would, uh, just, would, you, would you say in that session you've got, like say I jump about from drill to drill to, not drill, um, like warm up to a game, different cones here, different cones there. You know, I, I would always use people along the sideline, people to help me out just with the, the speed of organisation and the flow of your session to go from one to another to another. Don't be afraid as a coach to, to use those people to, your, to, to help you. Yeah. Because there's nothing more frustrating from a playing group is, right, we've got this game we've got going here and we've got these poles here and uh, I'm just trying a second, I'm just going to just put these cones out over here and move these poles off the pitch. And, you know, your actual flow of the session and your... The organisation of your cones and, the, and everything else is, is, is critical to the experience the players have. Absolutely. And I think that ties in with what they're buying into the session. And I think we're lucky that we do have quite a few coaches that we use like kind of a rotation system and then we finish with a bigger picture. So it's that kind of uh, whole part whole kind of aspect. But I suppose moving away from some of the co- the training experiences, uh, last kind of two questions for you. And I wonder some of the some of the really interesting chats I've had with people who I know being Irish um, and now playing in England are around the differences of the leagues, the styles, the way they play. And then also I was wondering if you could give some insight into any differences that you've experienced in the types and the way the players take on information between the Irish and the English lads. Yeah, I think I think I think there's a probably a I think people underestimate the quality of the Pro 14. I think there's a perception out there because of the spread of the teams in terms of competitiveness is different to the premiership. The spread of the teams in terms of competitiveness the premiership is very tight, you know, so it makes it a really competitive league. So the best and the and the 12th team are, uh, are often small margins. In, in the Pro 14, that gap is slightly bigger. However, the best teams are good, really good. You know, and you know, if you put the likes of Scarlets or Glasgow or Edinburgh or Munster or Leinster or Connor, these Ulster, you know, in, in, in the Premiership and say go head-to-head, put the best teams out, those teams would be very, very good. Very good. And they're well-coached. You know, you look at the number of 
quality coaches that exist in the Pro 14. There's a wider variety of styles, I think, in the Pro 14 than the Premiership. I think there's a very similar style in the Premiership. Um, there's a wider variety. Obviously, geography plays a part in that. But, you know, uh, um, a Benetton Treviso are a really difficult team to beat now. You know, they're really well coached. Uh, Kieran Krause did an amazing job there. Um, very strong physical team with supplemented by good overseas players. You know, so playing the Italian teams um, is one thing. Going to to play Scarlets uh, or Ospreys, you know, playing the interprovincials in Ireland, the tribal rivalry that exists. So I think the Pro 14 has, has huge strengths. And I think it frustrates, I think, everyone in, you know, the Irish side, for example, that, oh, well, you know, they just saved themselves for Europe. We have 17 international players at Leinster and they all go away. And now, obviously, we are going to play them in Europe if they are back. But to say we, we save everything for Europe is wrong because we want to win everything. We want to win every game. We want to win every Pro 14 game. And we've done it with 51 players this year. So in terms of the, the comparison between the Irish and the English, um, obviously rugby players are rugby players. I think if you went to, to any environment, there'd be a similar feel and a similar, similar mindset. The one thing I'd say about the Leinster environment, and I, you know, I can speak more clearly about that than, than uh, Connacht, Munster or Ulster, but um, 95% of the team at Leinster is homegrown. So they are born and bred in Dublin or the province of Leinster. They've come up with school together. Their, their connections are incredibly close. Some of the uh, English teams, even though they've got strong academies, I would say the, the throughput from the academy into the senior team and that sense of, right, we're 95% Worcester lads born and bred in Worcester, Worcestershire or Birmingham or whatever, that's not the same. And I, I don't see that in any English team. Um, so I think that's, that's a big difference. And it's a strength of um, the Irish provinces, certainly for Leinster, no doubt. I think the, uh, the Irish system allows the players to develop at a slower rate, which I think is a positive. So I think in England, you know, a lot of decisions get made about lads at 18 and then they're either get asked not to go to university or, you know, they're, they're training with the first team at 18. I think it's very young, personally. I think the Irish system allows players to join the sub-academy at 18, two years in the sub-academy, play Ireland 20s, join the academy at 20, do three years in the academy. Now you're ready to go, 21, 22, 23. You've got your degree in the bag. You've got your, your club rugby's been through UCD or Trinity or Clontarf or wherever. You know, there's a good club programme that underpins that. So the playing programme's strong. The quality of coaching in the international age grade teams is excellent. You know, Ireland 20s were excellent this year. Yeah. So um, the central contracting system, the management of the players, I think is, a, is the strength of the Irish system. Um, and just back to that university thing, one of the things I noticed um, is that generally the Irish lads are quieter. You know, if there was a, you go back to your insights profile, um, and I would say the Irish lads would be more on the introverted side. They'd be more blue-green rather than red-yellow. So red being directive, yellow being extrovert, uh, green being supportive, blue being detail-orientated. They'd be more blue-green. Uh, but that's not to say, you know, they, they, they couldn't be the, the, the red-yellow, but it's, more of them are on that side of the, the wheel, so to speak. And whereas in England, I think there's a greater spread around the wheel and a lot more sort of yellow, extrovert, you know, yep. um, uh, type players. And there's no right or wrong, you know, there's no, you actually want to bounce the ball or four colours anyway to once in your team. Um, so sometimes I have to push the, the Leinster lads to talk more in meetings, to communicate more, but equally, I never have the issue of concentration, discipline, attention to detail, huge, huge strengths. And good lads, yeah. uh, good, 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 low ego. You know, I think I'm from the north of England and I think the reason I fitted in so well is because it's a very similar mentality to where I'm from. So, yeah. and I put, you know, obviously Ulster 
Belfast, all the guys I've met from Ireland are very, very similar in that in that regard, I think. It's interesting you make that comparison because, again, off the back of the Richard Wigglesworth chat, he, he suggested that Andy Farrell had said to him that Richard, who's moving into coaching, will love would love coaching in Ireland because there is a real similarity between them and some of the Northern boys. And uh, I've met a few Northern boys over here since I've been here, and there's definitely a similarity in one way or another. But I think that insight into the, the, the English system versus the Irish system is amazing because, you know, someone who's working at the top end of both able to give an opinion on that. Um, I suppose to round it off, this is kind of two-pronged and probably one of the most important aspects of what we discussed. Some of the other stuff, you know, this this will sit very personally with what you believe and, and I'm interested in that. And I suppose in the first part of it, what's the most rewarding part of being a coach? But tied in with that, if one of your players were asked to describe you in terms of your coaching style and your, and your personality, uh, in terms of how you engage with them, what would they say? Depends which player you'd ask. <laughs> um, uh, let, let's go with one of the Leinster lads. Uh, yeah, no, I think the reason I no, the reason I mentioned that is because people see different versions of you as a coach depending on your position as a coach. So if you're if you're the head coach and I'm saying to you, "Sorry, mate, you're not playing this weekend," or "I'm not renewing your contract," or whatever, that's completely different for me being your assistant coach, who's just there to help you get better. That definitely has a bearing on on people's perception of you, and you know you can't you can't change that. All you can do is in the best way possible. You know, so it's very difficult for Leo, for example, who, who would make those decisions at Leinster, to be as close to the playing group as, as maybe I am or, or, or someone else's, Felipe or Robert. Uh, yeah, in answer to the second question, I'd like to think that people would, going back to the credibility thing, he says he's honest, he's, he's got a good technical ability, um, he does what he says he's going to do, he thinks about the future. Yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's why I try and build it. I think that's a really good way to look at it. That credibility thing is something I've written down and I really like. Um, the, the first question was, I suppose... It's kind of the reason why you do it. What's the most rewarding oh, yeah. part of being a coach? Oh, that's such an easy one to answer. In that, that I just I genuinely love the I love the the idea of helping people get better and passing on what I've learned and building and working in teams. And I think you know that stems from the reward you get as a teacher when you see a kid who comes through at eleven years old leave as um, a good person who's going to go on to successful life at sixteen. Or, or there's some kid who's come from a troubled background and they, they're, they're on the route to destruction, really, you know, smoking, they're truanting, whatever else. And you manage to turn them around and you get them on the straight and narrow and you see maybe on Facebook. I'm thinking about a particular lad, actually, I coached on Facebook, live in Australia, wife, two kids, you know, amazing. That, 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 that you know, for me, I really enjoyed the company of the kids when I was a teacher. I enjoyed, you know, building relationships with them. There were some kids who I taught and who come to my wedding. Um, That's class. And they who become teachers. Or it's very rewarding now to connect with coaches who I used to coach, who players who become coaches. I find that very rewarding, and I find it very rewarding to work with every player at Leinster and and any. To be honest, there's, I've got no ABC of importance, so it, it, it's as rewarding for me to coach my son's under 16 when they were under 60s and help them become better and the coaches and the parents understand more about the game. You know, so I just love that. I love that part of coaching. Um, coach development, I think, will be a big driver for me as I get older um, and yeah. helping coaches get better. So that's why you know, I agree to this, you know, because hopefully people will listen um, and, and take anything out of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, then, and then the second point is working in teams. So, um, you know, how you build a good team, you know, the challenge of that, the piecing the jigsaw together, the creating the vision to drive them towards excellence. Um, and and the, the, moment, the moments that you strive for are those moments in the change room after a game. 
you know, and they don't last for long, but, but when you have those moments and it's the, you've won a trophy or you've won a game that you maybe shouldn't have won or, you know, you've achieved something great as a group, you just crave those moments, those 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, the beer that you have, um, the crack of the lads. They're the moments you strive for. And I think you, you can't, it's very hard to get that in any other environment. Even in business, you might get an occasional sales win or whatever, but that's why people play sport. That's why people watch sport. Couldn't have summed it up better myself. I think, um, you know, I'd just like to say a big thank you for coming on because I know you've been asked to come on virtually every pod on leadership, management, sports and all aspects. And I appreciate you taking the time to come and chat to us today. It's been very, very insightful for me as a young coach. And I think there's going to be loads of people listening to this, taking loads out of it. Um, and I just want to wish you and your family all the best and, and safety over the next couple of weeks. Okay, mate. No problem. Enjoyed it. A massive thanks to Stuart for coming on. We really appreciate him taking the time to come on and give us some inside information on elite performance and coaching. As always, eyes the social media and we'll see you guys again. Cheers. <laughs>